Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne podcast. This episode is about the last founder of Cologne. Well, in my opinion, the last founder of Cologne. Agrippina is her name. Agrippina is a monster, a murderer, seductive and ruthless. There has been the verdict about her since the day she died in 59 CE. Is that really true? Let's find out more in this episode. Agrippina was born in 15 CE in Oppidum Ubiorum, which is today's Cologne. Her father, who was at that time governor of Gaul, just like Agrippina's grandfather, remember Agrippa, 35 years before, that's how it came that a Roman noblewoman was born far away from Rome. And Agrippina is actually the first citizen of Cologne who was born here that we know of. If you know somebody else, well, please let me know, but I didn't know anyone else. Her parents were quite the top notch of the Roman elite at that time. Her mother was Agrippina, so we call her now Agrippina the Elder. She has the same name as her daughter, and Agrippina the Elder was the daughter of famous Agrippa and his wife Julia. And Julia was also the daughter of first emperor Augustus, who was best friends with Agrippa. For the reason of sparing you with confusion, I will continue calling Agrippina the Younger, the founder of Cologne, just Agrippina. If I'm talking about her mother, I will slap on the elder. Her father was Germanicus, well that was his nickname and I will keep to that name to not confuse you with all those similar sounding names that those imperial families had at that time. He was an adopted stepson of Roman Emperor Tiberius, who was the second emperor after Augustus had died in 14 CE. So you see, both parents were related to Augustus in some way, by blood and by adoption. We don't know much about Agrippina's childhood, but that's not unusual for that time. Romans didn't see childhood as something that was worthy enough to be mentioned for later generations. And even especially girls like young Agrippina could be betrothed with just 7 years and marry with just 12 years. So yeah, we don't know much about her childhood, but the story about her family at that time we do know. Especially we know what happened when she was just 4 years old. Her father Germanicus, still very young, died under strange circumstances. Rumor had it that Germanicus had been poisoned by Emperor Tiberius. You have to know, Germanicus, he could deserve a whole own episode about his life as well, was very popular throughout the empire. So popular that when Augustus had died, parts of the Roman legions that were stationed along the Rhine under the command of Germanicus immediately proclaimed him Germanicus as a new emperor instead of Tiberius. It pretty much looked like the long tradition of Roman civil war was celebrating a comeback after a long break that had been the reign of Augustus. But Germanicus, being loyal to Rome and Augustus' last will to put Tiberius into office as the next emperor, declined and put an end to this revolt by calling this coup d'etat off. I'm not really good at French, sorry. Coup? Coup d'etat? Tell me how you pronounce it in English. Germanicus was sent to the region as general after the blowing defeat in Teutoburg Forest. He went on punitive expedition against Germanic tribes in the east. That's where he got his honorific title from. He used the Oppidumobiorum, later Cologne, as a base for his military actions, and his pregnant wife went along with him. That's why her identically named daughter was born here. The Roman campaigns, despite some victories, were not efficient at that time. Germanicus won several battles. Still, he never got that decisive battle or victory, nor kill Arminius. 
but Germanicus did something that was more important for the hearts and minds in Rome. He revisited the battle site in the Teutoburg Forest. There, Germanicus gave the dead corpses of the Roman legions a proper burial. That made him more famous than any other general of his time. But that was in the past, and now Germanicus was dead, aged just 34 years. And his widow Agrippina the Elder accused Emperor Tiberius of poisoning and killing her husband. If that is true or not is another question, but you can assume that Agrippina the Elder just told her daughter that from every morning at the breakfast table up until the evening when she went to bed. After a few years, Tiberius had enough of Agrippina the Elder, spreading rumors about him killing her husband. He exiled her onto the same island her own mother had been sent to before and had died. There she died a few years later, when her daughter Agrippina was just 18 years old and already married. Just imagine that impact on that young woman this might have had. Becoming an orphan at young age, Agrippina would grow up in only one belief. Life as a member of the imperial family meant you had to be tough, no one was safe, and do everything to survive. It was not a nice life for women, even for noble women. A woman, no matter if common or noble, was only valuable as a wife back then. As a noble woman, she got a wide variety of education in philosophy, math or state theory, but because of her gender, she was not granted any political rights or power. But Agrippina was well aware of her ancestry. It was her inspiration and source for her ambitions and her mindset that it was her birthright to have a leading role in the empire. As I said, there was no real childhood for children back then, especially for girls. And Agrippina's first marriage was with 13. She had a first and only child when she was 22 years old. You all know him, Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus, or how the world would know him later as Emperor Nero. Shortly after becoming a mother, it seemed like Agrippina would end up like her mother. Emperor Tiberius had died recently, and Emperor Caligula, who was the next emperor in line and was Agrippina's brother, exiled her two years later for assumption of treason. At that time, Agrippina's husband died of a natural death. So it seemed like she was now expelled from her family and her husband was dead. For a woman in ancient Rome and even for a noblewoman, this was a pretty bad situation. But Agrippina was still lucky. She wouldn't encounter the same fate as her mother. Her brother, Emperor Caligula, got hit by a palace coup and was killed by his own guard two years after she had been sent to exile. So in 41 CE... Agrippina returned to Rome. As a widow and still being young, she marries again. But Agrippina's second husband died shortly after as well. Now you have to know, Romans, you might have guessed it, were pretty anti-feminist. Well, there wasn't even feminism at all. And now, being a widow for the second time in just a very short period of years, rumor had it all across the city that she might have killed her husband. Is that true? Well, we don't know for sure. In 49 CE, Agrippina marries for a third time, and her new husband, it was a really big surprise back then, was Emperor Claudius. Emperor Claudius was the next emperor after Caligula had been killed after four years of his despotic reign. But marrying Claudius was not only a surprise because Agrippina would just marry the highest man in the state, no, it was also her uncle. And to celebrate a wedding like this, Marrying your own uncle. Even the Senate was forced to change Rome's laws for marriage. It wasn't uncommon for Roman nobles to intermarry between 
very close related families, but a marriage between so close relatives was forbidden and regarded as incest. But the wise senators made an exception in this case. The question is, how did Agrippina achieve all that? Becoming the wife of an emperor after being exiled and being punished. As I said, political power for women back then? No. As a woman, Agrippina didn't have any official rights. But if you are living closely with the ruling emperor in Rome, even women like Agrippina could gain power if they were smart. More power than any common folk could ever dream of. And Agrippina used it like no other female member of the imperial family before and after her. She got so powerful as a wife of Emperor Claudius that she was named Augusta. Augusta was an honorific title that never before was given to an empress so early at the beginning of her reign. Well, it wasn't really her reign, but it was a very short time after she had married Claudius. But not only that, Agrippina even had her own Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was a military force stationed inside the city of Rome, and it usually only protected the emperor and was solely under his command. And Agrippina didn't just stop here. She even put one of her personal loyal friends as head of the Praetorian Guard, de facto controlling the only organized armed forces that were allowed inside the city of Rome. Adding to that, she issued her own coins throughout the whole empire, and she did that without adding the emperor's face on the coin next to her own. So what's the big deal, you might ask? Well, in times where there was no TV, video streaming or newspapers, this was a huge deal. Coins were the place where the emperors presented themselves to their subordinates, who would most likely never see their leader in person, especially in a world-stretching empire like the one of the Romans. This was a privilege only given to the emperor. Now it seemed like Rome didn't just have an emperor, but an empress as well, on the same stage. Well, so much for a biography. I can guess that you already are screaming at your device where you are listening this podcast to and yell, what's that have to do with Cologne? Let's cut to the chase of this episode's topic. Why is Agrippina founder of Cologne? Because she was just born here and she would never return. Never. The answer is quite easy and complex. The easy answer is... Agrippina promoted the Oppidum Ubirorum, later Cologne, to a colony. Cologne was raised to the status of a colony in the year 50 CE. This is one year after she had married Claudius, and one year after Claudius himself gave the same rights to the city of Lugdunum, which is today's Lyon in France, and this is the city where Claudius was born. Now you might think raising a settlement to the status of a colony, that's horrible. But history has changed a lot of the time and also has the definition of words. Because a colony back in the Roman Empire was the highest civic dignity a city could achieve. Being a colony means you are in favor of the emperor. A colony made the city where you lived at as similar as Rome in terms of rights and infrastructure. So it means that a Roman colony, wherever it is in the world, is meant as a copy of Rome, a copy of its freedom and glory. So a colony back then is not that perverted thing that imperialistic nations in the West did in the 19th and 20th century. Being a citizen of a Roman colony meant that you had a full Roman citizenship. Your settlement had political freedoms like self-governance and having an own city senate, just like the Senate of Rome. So yeah, that's, that's it. It was maybe a small gesture for Agrippina, 
but had a lasting impact on the city of Cologne up until today. The question remains, why make Cologne a colony? Why did Agrippina do that? She never came back to that city, and I'm sure that she was not really interested in that city anymore. But let's turn to the sources, like Tacitus, who we had mentioned before. He writes, quote, Agrippina, on the other hand, in order to advertise her strength to the provinces, also arranged for the plantation of a colony of veterans in the Ubian town where she was born. The settlement received its title from her name, and, as chance would have it, it had been her grandfather Agrippa who extended Roman protection to the tribe on its migration across the Rhine. End quote. Tacitus tells us that the city was named after her, and we'll get to the name of the city. It's quite long and complicated, but before, I want to say this. Cities in ancient times had been named after women, especially in the Hellenistic world of the Greeks. But never had a Roman colony, remember a copy of Rome itself, been named after a woman. Especially after a woman that was still alive, and would never occur again in Roman history. So we have to consider this. Claudius made Lyon, a city in today's France, a colony as emperor a year prior. Agrippina allegedly wanted to catch up as empress, and made her birthplace great again. Oh, wait, um, just, just great, not great again. It was important for her. She did this after a year she married Emperor Claudius to gain equality with her husband. For Agrippina personally, making Cologne a colony was just a means to an end, not a sign of local patriotism, but had a big impact for Cologne. First of all, the name. It was no longer the Opidum Ubiorum, the settlement of the Ubii. The new name was now, and now, I'm sorry, I will butcher English-Latin accents. Cologne was now called Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinensium. Difficult name. Even the Romans thought that. So, over the time, the name would melt down to Colonia Agrippina. So let's get to the big and long name first. The meaning of the components. Colonia is very obvious. It states the rank of Cologne as a Roman colony. Colonia is the part of the name that survived through the ages. Cologne in German, I never said that before I guess, but Cologne in German is called Köln. So, listen closely and follow me through 2000 years of development. It was Colonia, Cologne, Köln, Köln. That's how Cologne, or Köln in German, got its name from. If that's still a little bit confusing to you, it's a little bit like the city Charleston in South Carolina. Its first name was, back then, Charlestown. But after some time, the name merged together. Charleston, instead of Charles's town, I guess. Just like Cologne's name did. It just took way longer, about a few hundred years. The second component of that long name, remember the whole name was Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinensium, so we're now at Claudia. So Claudia stands for Emperor Claudius, of course, giving the city the rank of a colony. That's pretty easy. Ara is the third component. Ara is Latin for altar, so Ara means that there is an altar for the goddess Roma. For us today, it's very different to understand why that is important to have in your name. You don't have the word church in your city name. Oh, wait. Actually, many cities do. Christ Church. Yeah, many, like the city in New Zealand, it has church in its name. So for us again, today, very different to understand, but the component aura, meaning altar, stated 
For everyone well known back then at the time, that this city was so important that it was serving as a regional religious center. That's why they had the word Ara in it. And last but not least, the fourth component of the name is Agrippinensium. Well, I don't have to explain that, I guess. It is of course of the fact that Agrippina was the one who promoted Cologne to a colony. It was her initiative. That's why she's also mentioned in there. And so frankly, Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinensium just means this is the colony of Claudius. It has an altar and the people living there are called Agrippinians because the citizens of Cologne were called Agrippinians in ancient times. Well, that changed, of course, because nobody calls himself an Agrippinian today anymore. No one. So that is the story back then. What I want to focus now is how historical science sees all of that. How does historical science today see her? And how did the opinion about her even shift? And it shifted in many ways. I just mentioned Tacitus as a direct source, but all I said about her was, of course, from written accounts we have about Agrippina. And all those written accounts we have about Agrippina, they were written by men. And those men were most of the time aristocratic men. And those aristocratic men didn't really like the imperial family. Those were men who wanted the aristocracy to rule as the Senate had done in the good old but then long gone days of the Roman Republic. So the goal of their work was always to tell how degenerated the imperial family was and how Rome was better off when noblemen would rule the empire. And the reason why we hear about Agrippina being a murderer and murderer of husbands is pretty simple. Agrippina was the mother of later Emperor Nero, who was a tyrant, and Nero even ended up killing himself. So as many times Agrippina as the mother had to be blamed for her son's actions. She was long dead then when it all happened, but hey, never mind, it's always the mother's fault, isn't it? Well, let's quit the joking. Consider this. I just want you to give you this. If Agrippina was really doing all the things that she was accused of, like killing her husbands and promoting her son to become emperor later on, does it really make her worse than all the male figures who had a real thirst for power in the Roman era? I personally believe that her damaged reputation was because of her being a woman. That's why she was so poorly treated by ancient writers like Tacitus. If she was a man, they would have probably still not praised her, but her um, his political skill and the way of playing the Game of Thrones haha, would have gained some acknowledgement, at least. Well, enough with that, because this is just speculating. I don't think that Agrippina was good, but neither was she as bad as she was depicted. The question remains for us today, was Agrippina really important for Cologne's history? And I say yes, because some historians don't think that her role was such of an importance. But what is true about Agrippina is the reception of her. This is the thing that is important. People in Cologne looked up to her during the centuries to come. And this is really interesting, because while the rest of Europe saw her as a monster, as a murderer, and of course as mother of evil Emperor Nero, the Nero who for the first time purged Christians in Rome. And by many historians in the Middle Ages, she was treated wrong. For a long time, her grandfather Agrippa got confused with her by accident and or on purpose by those historians as a founder of Cologne. What's interesting for me is that Agrippina wrote an autobiography that was wide known back then at the time when she lived. 
and was often cited. Sadly, it didn't make it through the course of history. It got lost. We don't have any written records about it anymore. We have to assume that it's lost for good. Which really saddens me. I would really like to know what she thought and wrote about. Would have really been interesting what a noble woman in power would think about the time she lived in back then. The year 2015 marked her 2000th birthday. Well, it's hard to announce. Well, she was now 2000 years old if she would live up until today, which is impossible, I guess. And in that year, I wouldn't say that she was forgotten, but it was not really much that was made out of that event. The Museum of Roman Germanic History of Cologne dedicated an exclusive exhibition for her, of course. But as a comparison, another famous citizen of Cologne, Jacques Offenbach, is celebrated in various ways this whole year since it's his 200th birthday this year, in 2019. No day passes where I don't see the face of this German-French composer on an ad in a subway station or on a big screen. He deserves all of this, for sure, don't get me wrong. But I wish we would have had the same amount of attention for Agrippina. And this didn't really happen. She had a small comeback in the late 19th and early 20th century, when the upper class in Europe rediscovered their passion for the ancient world. The Agrippina insurance company is like one example. It is the oldest insurance company of Cologne that was founded in the late 19th century. And before someone accuses me of this, this is no ad because the company was taken over by another big insurance company in 2001 and since then is run by the name of the new owner. You can look it up who it is now. It's a city in Switzerland. It's called after. So let's end the story. Agrippina's story and biography. And I have to say it's well, it didn't end very well. We go to the year 54 CE, four years after Agrippina founded Cologne or raised Cologne to the rank of a colony. She tried to gain even more power, and this time she was triumphant. She convinced her husband and uncle, Emperor Claudius, to appoint her son Nero as his official heir for emperor. This is quite remarkable because Claudius had a son of his own from a marriage before. All seemed to go well for Agrippina but then it seemed that Claudius remembered that he had a son, and it would be better to appoint him as the heir of the empire. Agrippina realized that she had to move quickly. So, Claudius really liked mushrooms. At a dinner, Agrippina killed Claudius with a poisoned mushroom meal. Claudius now was dead, and Agrippina's son Nero would rule the empire. Since the boy was still pretty young, it would be certainly easy for his mother to control him. But wait, that's what all those anti-imperial male historians I mentioned earlier wrote about this affair. Especially Tacitus wrote that he only mentions Agrippina's involvement in killing Claudius because he had heard it or read it somewhere. There are other kinds of historians who don't even mention her Agrippina poisoning some meal for Claudius. And Claudius was already in his mid-60s, which was a really high age at that time, back then. It can also be believed that Claudius just might have died of a heart attack, and there are also reports that he had diarrhea for very long. And adding to that, nothing really proves that Claudius was changing his mind of replacing Nero as his heir. I'm sorry for drawing this out again, but this really bothers me. We don't know the right answer. But this doesn't mean we should just assume what is meant to be true. And in doubt, always for the accused, don't we? But of course, things had changed for Agrippina when her husband died. 
Like I said, with her young son Nero, she thought she could rule even with more power. Oh girl, how she was wrong. After a few years, Nero was sick and tired of his mother's influence, not only in his political but also in his personal life. So what do you do as a son who is not of his mother? Well, of course, you decide to kill her. It seems that killing family members had already been a long-established tradition of this imperial dynasty. But killing your own mom? Wow. Even that was regarded as sinful back at that time. You couldn't just do that in broad daylight. It would not only anger the people, it would also be a sin in front of the gods. So Nero decided to make it look like an accident. Agrippina was clever though. There are several stories how she allegedly survived many murder attempts by her son. Like this approach. A ship was sent by Nero to pick up Agrippina. The ship should bring Agrippina to him for, I guess, family peace talks? But instead the ship was meant to sink with the purpose to at last drown her. Well, didn't happen. Uh, half of it. The ship sank as planned. But because unlike most people back then, Agrippina learned how to swim. And survived. Another account says that she was poisoned three times, just like she allegedly had poisoned her belated husband before. But being uh, quite a professional in this profession herself, she always took antidotes every day. So that fails too. Another plan to crush the ceiling of a bedroom on top of her while she was sleeping, well, you guessed it, it also fell through. Not the roof, the planted. Now, killing your own mom, I can imagine, puts you under some kind of stress. But failing at it several times stresses you even more out. Nero finally lost the remaining parts of his ethics and decided to just send some soldiers to kill her. When the soldiers approached her and Agrippina saw that the end was inevitable, she showed them her belly and yelled, Smite my womb! Wishing to have that part of her body destroyed first and had given birth to the person who had given the order to kill her. Thank you for listening. So that's it. That's Agrippina's life and the impact she had on Cologne. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. The next episode we'll talk about Cologne, how it struggled in the first years to survive politically and, well, surviving in general because being under attack. Because after Nero's suicide, four emperors are fighting over the throne of the empire and it puts Cologne right into danger because Germanic tribes see the chance to ultimately take back control of the left bank of the Rhine. And uh, what is on the left bank of the Rhine? Oh, Cologne, yeah. It will fall under siege. And how Cologne survives that, we will learn in the next episode. So stay tuned and as always, thank you and auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>